a little bit, uh, a little bit shorter today because we've got a birthday party. And also, we do a special night. We're also going to do one other special thing. <laughs> which is we are going to ordain Cassie and Caroline and Diane. So I'm really excited to do that. But first, we are going to continue on here in our sermon series, The Monsters of the Bible. And, you know, Advent is the season that we talk about. It's a season of waiting in the church calendar, and it's waiting on God to break through in our lives. But many of the reasons that we need God to break through in our lives are personified in Scripture in these sort of monstrous, terrifying forms. And so today, we're going to talk about Leviathan. So you might be like, what is Leviathan? Leviathan is a mythical sea monster that's often depicted being like a dragon, only it lives in the ocean. And Leviathan is called out by name in four different books of the Bible. It's called out in Job, Psalms, Amos, and Isaiah. But such creatures might actually be alluded to right from the very beginning in Genesis chapter 1 in the creation story. So the Robert Alter translation of Genesis chapter 1, he's probably the best translator of the Hebrew um, today. He, He wrote, And God created the great sea monsters and every living creature that crawls, which the water had swarmed forth of each kind, and God saw that it was good. And God blessed them, saying, be fruitful and multiply and fill the water in the seas. So this is interesting. This And God created the great sea monsters. And the Hebrew that is there is actually a general term that probably covers a lot of like large aquatic creatures, from the crocodile to the whale to the shark. But the term is also used for mythical monsters, like Leviathan, and like those that predate Leviathan in the various Near Eastern myths. And that idea isn't lost on some of the Hebrew prophets. So to understand how the prophets interact with Leviathan, we have to remember that the creation stories of Genesis, they focus on how the God of the Hebrew peoples turns chaos into order. So the idea is that the chaos, the welter and the waste that was there in the beginning, that God took it, and the creation stories say that day by day, God created order out of that chaos, right? He separated dark from light and sun from moon and the water from the land. And so in this picture, the waters, the oceans and the seas, they aren't a scary thing, right? They're just part of the creation, a place where the great sea monsters live. And God almost treats these great sea creatures like you might treat a pet, right? God said it was good, like, you know, like, good boy. And God bless them. Be fruitful. Go and multiply and fill the waters in the seas. And so in this telling, we're introduced to God as a ruler over both chaos and creatures. And this establishes a theme. And then moving away from the creation stories, the ocean and the seas, they actually start to serve as metaphors for chaos. Not always, but very often. So in the Gospels, you know, there's a couple of stories where Jesus is out with his disciples on a boat on really stormy waters in the Sea of Galilee. And we see that Jesus comes in. In one case, there's a story about him calming the waters. There's another one where he's even walking on top of them. And so some people see this as part of his claim to be God, that he's a being who tames and who rules over the metaphorical chaos like the Hebrew God did in the beginning. By the end of our book, at the end of the Bible, you know, we're looking at kind of the bookends, the very beginning and the very end, the sea has gone away completely. So by Revelation 21, which I think is the second to last chapter in the Bible, the ocean is just no longer. The Apostle John writes, he said, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, 
For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven. From God, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and she will dwell with them. They will be her people, and God herself will be with them and will be their God. So in other words, John is describing this hope for a day when the primordial chaos and evil of life no longer exist. Right, so in the beginning, God rules over the chaos, and in the end, the chaos is gone. But in between the beginning and the end of our book, there is indeed chaos and lots of it. And before we look at the monsters who live in that chaos, I want us to try and better access the mindset of the writers of the Bible here. So the view of many of the writers of Scripture is that God permeates everything. And that's hard for us to get around. Like even some of us who have grown up hearing like there's no divide between what's sacred and what's secular, everything is of God. It's still hard, at least for me and my Western mind, to not kind of picture those things as something happening out here and something here, right? So this is, is more like, like where pantheism would say everything is God, you know, like the tree is God, everything is God. This is more like they call it panentheism, which says that everything is in God and God is in everything. And that everything is a potential revealer of God. And it's hard to understand that mindset, but this is what the Apostle Paul is writing when he wrote to the Colossians, which I find to be like one of the, the most interesting, mystical, and hard to access little bits of the New Testament. Paul says, the sun is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him, all things were created. In him, all things are created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He's before all things and in him all things hold together. Which for me begs a lot of questions that I'm not going to be able to answer this morning. But like, why, why is, there, is evil created in God? I don't know. But everything, visible and invisible, the powers, all are in and through the creator. And I think this worldview is actually a little bit closer to some of the Eastern worldviews, like maybe the Chinese understanding of yin and yang, and to some of what I'm learning about some of the indigenous people's understandings of the world where like everything is infused with spirit and is sort of indecipherable from it. And so you might ask, okay, well, how does this mindset manifest in the Bible? Well, here's an example from the book of Revelation. And the apostle John is... He's writing and he's saying that God told him to write letters to churches in various cities. I think he writes seven letters to seven churches. And when he writes these letters, he said that God told them to address the angels of those churches. Right? So he'd write, to the angel of the church in Sardis, write this. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia, write this. And that's kind of odd. Like, why would God tell John to address letters to the angels of churches? I mean, I can't imagine that like, if I went out to our mailbox here at Blue Ocean and I opened up a letter and it said, to the angel of Blue Ocean Church Ann Arbor, I'd, I'd be like, well, that's weird. <laughs> I'd probably just throw it away. And our culture and our understanding, that doesn't make sense. But it's not weird if you think about spiritual beings as manifestations of physical realities and vice versa. Right? That the angel seemed to be like the corporate personality of the church, like its ethos, its spirit, its essence. And it's what makes up sort of the personality or the feel of a church. So when we come together, like this morning, to worship, our corporate feel and our personality is distinct from other churches and other faith communities. So in the Hebrew scriptures, particularly in the book of Daniel, um, they speak of things like angels of cities and even angels of entire nations. 
And the theologian Walter Wink, who's been really helpful to me in this, he writes this. He said, in other Jewish and Christian sources, I discovered ancient sages who believe that everything in creation has its own angel. That meant, I concluded, this is him, that everything has both a physical and a spiritual aspect. So the powers that be are then not simply people and institutions, as I first thought. They also included the spirituality at the core of those institutions and structures. He said, if we want to change these systems, we have to address not only their outer forms, but also their inner spirit. And he says, I found the implications of that view staggering because it means that every business, every corporation, every school, every denomination, every bureaucracy, every sports team, in fact, every social reality is a combination of both visible and invisible, like an outer, inner, physical, spiritual. So this may or may not be like a quote-unquote correct understanding of reality, but can we understand that this is how some of the writers of Scripture thought? Does that make sense, if we can kind of enter into that? And could it be helpful to us? So in the way that John spoke about the angels of churches, I might describe the same thing by talking about culture. You know, like, what's the culture of U of M? What's the culture of Ford? What's the culture of our church? And then the writers of scripture might personify this idea, right, and infuse it with a spirituality. And I find that helpful because sometimes for me, culture can feel like a larger living, breathing entity. Doesn't it? It can feel like it's almost alive. And so with this in mind, I think we can better understand Leviathan, as well as some other creatures in the scripture, like the dragon in the book of Revelation. Because how would you describe the culture of a large institution that is pervasively corrupt? You might describe it like a sea monster, right? Leviathan is a living, breathing creature that personifies large systemic evil. So in the Bible, it's often seen as an embodiment of empires and of systems gone bad. And it thrives, perhaps even creates, the chaos and the evil and the death. So like angels are sometimes thought to embody the positive essences of people and institutions in the Bible, Leviathan and Behemoth and dragons, they embody like the negative evil essences. And it's not always black and white. It's not like things are you know, always good or always evil, even in the scriptures. It's talking about how systems and people can be both good and evil. So like when John is addressing the angels of the churches, he talks to them about what they do well, and then he also talks to them about what they need to do to improve, right? So it's, it's not like it's a tidy metaphor, but it's a way of trying to describe a felt reality. So if you've ever worked at a school or a company um, or an office where the politics just feel ugly and bigger than you, and it feels almost like there's like a living sinister presence that sort of permeates the place, that's what the Bible would call Leviathan, right? It's the way that we describe the kind of evil that creates havoc and wrecks lives. We'd say racism is Leviathan. Governments that systematically oppress the poor and minorities are Leviathan, and when you challenge harmful systemic issues in workplaces that don't want to change, you might be said to be coming up against Leviathan. And the best description that we have of Leviathan in the Bible, it comes from the book of Job. And God is describing Leviathan to the main character who's called Job. So see if this description, if you, if you have something in mind where that resonates, see if this fits the description of the kind of evil that feels like it's almost just too much to deal with. And I'm going to paraphrase here from Job 40 and 41. Leviathan is a sea creature 
that no hook and cord can draw out of the water. That's the beginning. Have you guys ever been like on a pier in the ocean where they're fishing for sharks? Now, if you've ever seen like a shark fishing pole is like that big around and it's got a really thick cord, this is like saying no hook, no cord, no fishing pole could possibly draw this out of the water. Leviathan doesn't speak with gentle words. And if you try to put a hand on him, you won't even be able to recall how to do battle. All Leviathan has to do is look at you to cast you down. And I think this is so insightful, isn't it? Ken talked a little bit last week about how sometimes when people are either being scapegoated in systems or where you're a minority or something, you feel like the gaze of everyone around you is on you. It's like the eye of Sauron. It's like the evil eye is gazing at you. All Leviathan has to do is look at you to cast you down. His jaws are so strong that no one could hope to open his mouth. And his teeth, I like this, are surrounded with terror. His back is covered with rows of shields like scales. They're closed with the tightest seal, so no breath can even get between them. When he sneezes, he shoots out light. His eyes are like the eyelids of a dawn, like Gollum. Fire leaps from his mouth and sparks fly into the air like so much spittle, and smoke comes out of his nostrils. His flesh is hard cast and power dances before him. It's poetic, isn't it? It goes on. Leviathan's heart is like stone. And when he rears up, even the gods and goddesses are frightened. And when he crashes down, they cringe and they cower in fear. And where he walks, the ground becomes like jagged shards and he makes the sea boil like a glistening wake trailing behind him when he slithers and swims. Swords, spears, lances, they will do you no good. Iron, it's like straw to him. Bronze is like rotten wood. He has no match on earth. He is the king over all the proud beasts. That's a visceral description. Later on, when the prophet Isaiah speaks of his people being oppressed, he describes his hope that God will come and defend them and save them by saying that God will come and slay Leviathan on their behalf. The Lord will punish with his sword, his fierce, great and powerful sword, and Leviathan, the gliding serpent, Leviathan, the coiling serpent, God will slay the monster of the sea. Right, so Isaiah is speaking of his hope that God will just do away with the oppressive powers. And this is the same hope of the psalmist in Psalm 74. The psalmist says, it was you, God, who split open the sea by your power. You broke the heads of the monster in the waters. It was you who crushed the heads of Leviathan. So in this one, Leviathan has multiple heads. You gave it as food to the creatures of the desert. The day is yours, also the night. You established the moon and the sun, and it was you who set the boundaries of the earth. So in other words, this is actually hearkening back to the creation story where we started. Right, the psalmist is saying, remember, God, how you, at the creation, you made the sun and the moon, and you tamed the great sea creatures. Do you remember how you crushed Leviathan and tamed it on our behalf? Come, do it again. Right, this is the essence of Advent. We're waiting on you. Come and do it again, because there's creatures that feel too big for us. And then the psalm ends with the writer crying, rise up, God, defend your cause. So how is this picture of corrupt power helpful to us? Well, one, I think it just helps us read the Bible better, right, to understand what it's actually saying through some of these symbols in the worldview. But two, I think it can also help us as modern people just better understand the nature of groups 
and institutions that we act, interact with when we have this wisdom that's been passed down to us. I want to say it does feel a little naive to simply say that the takeaway from the Bible is that Leviathan is too big and don't worry, God will eventually slay Leviathan and we just have to sit back and everything will be okay. Because I don't think that's what the Bible is saying. I mean, part of the biblical worldview is yes, there is always hope. But it's also clear that we don't get to sit back and just let God do the work for us. Like we're absolved from opposing the Leviathans in the world. You know, when Martin Luther King Jr., he famously talked about the arc of the universe bending toward justice, he knew it wouldn't bend on its own. Right? It takes humans working in conjunction with this God who is loved to help bend it. And oftentimes it costs us to do so, but we're promised in the end that we're part of something that's bigger and more meaningful and that love will win out and that that's the hope that we carry. So in the Talmud, which is part of the Jewish tradition, there's a really cool image, I think, of Leviathan being served as the main course at the feast of God at the end of all. And I think that's just a great picture, almost like Leviathan sitting down in the ocean, just kind of being pickled, waiting for us. So it's like this giant banquet table, the sea monsters there on the carving board, and then the, the poet, the Jewish-German poet Heinrich Heine, he wrote a poem about Leviathan, and he took this a little bit further, and he talked about how Leviathan would be served with raisins, garlic, and radishes. I thought, that sounds like a very specific dish, and it might be good. But I like that picture. The people of light and love were going to eat the corrupt powers of the world with a side of garlic. So I think that the Bible can help us better understand the nature of groups and institutions in these ways. I think it helps us to understand that systemic evil is too big for one person to take on themselves. Right? So don't be surprised if you get clobbered, if you try and take on forces that are bigger than you, and if you're trying to do it alone. And that God is clear when he speaks to Job about this. He's like, Job, you're too small for such a task on your own. Only with me, the God who can tame chaos, and with the company of believers can you ever hope to prevail. You know, when Jesus walked the earth, he didn't come down and overthrow all of the systems of oppression at once. His strategy was to pray and to ask God where he could make a difference. Like, what's the strategy? Where could he bring healing and hope and acceptance and justice in the here and now? And then when he did those things, God was able to magnify them and make it so that it was like he was doing something that was larger than himself. And so this is what I would consider one of the core principles of our spirituality here at Blue Ocean. This idea that we're connected to a living God who is a spirit of love, who we can go to to ask for guidance in our one little step, whatever it is we're doing in our workplaces, in our relationships, with our families. What's the next step? And we trust then that God will guide us. And then last but not least, we can ask ourselves how we can partner with the best spiritual essences that surround us. Right, so to use the biblical language, how can we partner with the angels in our surroundings to magnify the good? And so with that, I'm going to close it down and we're going to take our couple of minutes of silence and meditation. And I'm going to offer a couple of different things that maybe you can sit here with God about. First, maybe we can sit and just ask um, God to fight on our behalf. Maybe there's a place where you feel like, I just need God. I can't do this. Or maybe you have felt sort of the oppressive weight of Leviathan on you, and you just need to experience the comforting presence of the Holy Spirit. So we'll take a couple of minutes. People and babies make noise, so don't worry about that. And we'll just invite the Spirit here. So Holy Spirit, we know you're here. Come in this space.
Jesus, sometimes it feels like the powers of the world and our jobs and our country, sometimes these things just feel overwhelming and like they're almost too big to carry or to tackle. And we just want to ask that you would come, be with us in this, fight on our behalf. I ask that you would give us strategies to know the small steps that we can take, you know, just loving one person at a time, that you would open our eyes to um, those places where when we're partnering with you, it will just magnify um, the amount that we are putting into it, Lord, for your glory's sake. In the name of your Son, I pray, amen.